Well, um, Kate, thank you very much. It, it is, you know, it's a great, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great honour to be here. I've never actually been in this space, and it's a, it's a beautiful space to walk into. Maybe you know it well, um, but it's it's a beautiful space to walk into, and it's nice, obviously, that Kate is here because this is Kate's baby. She's been here from the beginning, so she is she is our uh, our touchstone today. In fact, it's always nice when the founder is with us. It gives us sort of a reference point and, and a sense of security. So it, it's very, it's lovely to have Kate here. And I'm also very grateful to Kate for, for asking me to be here. And although I've never actually visited this, this particular space before, I used to um, work around the corner in Chapel Market in, uh, in what was then Sainsbury's. Um, and so I did actually go back to the shrine this morning um, before coming here. But I didn't touch the shrine, obviously, because we don't... Uh, touch is dangerous now, even at shrines. But uh, it was nice, actually, because um, I met, I met a, a woman from Singapore who was just doing her hands with her, you know, the stuff. And I was obviously too interested because she looked at me and said, would you like some? <laughs> so, of course, I said yes. And I discovered that she'd made it herself. So, uh, and with aloe, um, with 60, 65% vodka. And, um, and which apparently has to be over 65% alcohol to have any uh, effect. So we, we started talking about that. And then we were joined by uh, an Iranian man who had particular wisdom on the, on the virus because he was saying that all viruses are a result of dead animals and, in, you know, and the way that we murder and torture them and eat them. Uh, and so he was encouraging us, this, this little community that was forming outside the shop, <laughs> He was encouraging us to be vegan, and, um, uh, and he gave quite a long speech about that. And then, and then another woman joined us, because she was interested to hear, she was interested to hear that so much alcohol was necessary in the, to be effective. Um, and once she discovered that it needed to be at least sort of 65%, she said, well, I might as well just go and buy a bottle of gin, which, and use that, which he went off to do. Um, so, it was it was a lovely little time, which is, um, uh, and so even though you know even though the virus is separating us, in other ways it's joining us together um, because <laughs> there are so many ways to discuss hand washing that we, we never we never realised that actually hand washing was the most important thing, and it's we're all gathering around that. Um, so even if we've lost faith in God, we can gather around something, <laughs> and that is how to wash your hands and how much alcohol. Um, is necessary. So it is, it's, it is nice for me to be back in the area. Um, I'm just, I, would, I always feel, I, I also want to apologise at the beginning, only to the extent that if this isn't the day you thought it was going to be. I don't know what, but it's very hard not to have expectations, isn't it, of, of a day and what we think it's going to be. And I'm, if this isn't the day that you thought it was going to be or, or want it to be, uh, and I've, you know, I've been, <laughs> certainly been in that situation. I obviously feel the anger uh, and that frustration because that's normal. Um, allow it to be, allow it to be, allow all the, all the stuff to come out and, you know, the, sort of the hate towards me and the disappointment. But then, uh, if it's possible, I mean, it might be actually that's how you leave, but it might be, it might be that in the rubble, in the rubble of expect your expectations, there is some sort of treasure um, to be found. And it won't be any of my doing, 
it must be your doing. Um, but I hope, I hope this day is whatever you need it to be. Uh, and I just hope I don't get in the way of that. Um, I'm very glad that behind me is some light and that I'm not in the way of it. I'm to the side. Um, so, you know, feed on the light, feed on the beautiful collage, and we will just have an adventure. We will have an adventure um, together today. I presume that, um, I don't know if Kate did mention phones, or maybe, maybe you just know this, that you turn off your phones or you put them on silence, because it's always an embarrassing conversation at the beginning of events when you have to ask people to do that with their phones. And uh, um, because it is, it's like you are asking someone to sever their limbs. It's, you know, you might as well stand up and say, okay, now could everyone just cut their right arms off, please? Thank you, okay. Is that done? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, sometimes I work with some uh, leaders in, some in an organisation and the first hour of the day is always this battle around the phone because they're all so important that they can't turn off their phone. They need to be handling the crises. You know, you often have people suddenly getting up and walking out. Is that something really important? So you, you have this. Um, so, uh, you know, they are very important people who need to be with their phones. But obviously there's that lovely maturity here. And we've just done it, you know. Um, we've just done it. But maybe, maybe even harder than turning off our phones, letting go of our phones, uh, is letting go of control. Um, because obviously control, for, for various reasons from our past, is something that's very important to us. And in our different ways, it's helped us to survive. And for some of us here, it would have been really important um, because we may have been in situations where we didn't feel any sense of control at all, uh, which of course is terrifying, especially when you're this big and you've got no power. So it, it isn't surprising that we come into adult life with often you know, issues around control, and for each of us, you know, there'll be different sorts of issues. But uh, I think probably in, in something in a day like this, uh, the letting go of control uh, is going to be important as we approach our stories. If that's possible, it may not be possible, in which case, forgive yourself, that's fine. But I mean, our theme is the journey home, which will mean listening to your story. Listening to your story. So, I mean, I will tell quite a few stories today about other people. But there's only one story that's important today, and that's your story. So you've got no other responsibilities today. You don't need to look after anybody. All you need to do, all you're here for, is to look after your one precious story and your one precious life. Uh, and I'm sure you've done this before. I'm sure some of you are, are deep experts in your own narrative. But I suppose I, I'm one of those people who believe that actually we, we start every day afresh. Uh, I wake up every day not knowing anything, but glad to be alive. Uh, and so we start again, we start again. And I think we, we always start again with our story as well. So we're going to listen to your story, to your narrative, but hopefully with no sort of control imposed on it. Uh, so what I mean by that is that, so I was with someone yesterday, maybe a woman, I don't know, maybe she was late 40s, 
And she was telling me, with the first time we'd met, the first time we'd met, and she was telling me bits of her story. After about 20 minutes, she said, oh, there's another thing I want to tell you about. Uh, I said, oh, okay, right. And she said, yeah, when I was 17, I had an accident. And I was in hospital for seven weeks. And none of my teachers and none of my friends came to visit me. Um, she said, she said, I'm not actually sure of that because I might not be remembering well, but I think so. Uh, and I said, oh, okay. So I said, well, how did you feel about that? She said, well, I said, you know, you sound quite angry about that. Yeah, yeah, I am angry because I'd known the teachers for a long time and they didn't come see me. And my friends, well, one came, but the others didn't. So, so this is a woman going back to an event 30 years ago. And she spoke about it a bit and was obviously feeling quite strongly about it. Um, and, and I was, and I, 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 was, I was interested that, you know, of all the events in her life, she chose this one. Because, I mean, when you get to the age of 48, you'll have had lots of disappointments, lots of tragedies. But this was the one she chose. And this was the one that she was still angry about. And it was about the teachers and her friends. And, um, and I, just, I just said to her, she was, I just said to her, you know, you know, I think what I'm listening to, I'm listening to a story of a little girl much younger than 17. I'm listening to the story of a little girl who didn't feel cared for. And uh, she just started crying. And um, she she didn't really stop crying um, for the rest of our time together, although there were, there were sort of, you know, it was coming and going a bit. And so then she went into sort of rationalising mode. Oh, well, you know, my parents, and all, et cetera, et cetera. You know, sort of, sort of putting up defensive walls. But what her body was saying was, uh, yeah, I was a little girl you didn't feel cared for. So I suppose, for me, there's a narrative. So she's carried this narrative for a long time in her life. It's always been a very important, this incident of being let down by teachers and friends. And of course she was, in a way. That's how she felt at the time. And of course, you know, when you, of course you'd feel that. But maybe the fact that it's endured for so long means that actually it's about something else. That there's another narrative going on there. Perhaps a narrative under beneath the surface. So I suppose, you know, and, and, and I don't know how she's going to handle that. Is she going to be able to let go of control and, and come afresh to her life in, around that incident? Uh, or is she not? I don't know. I'll find out. But giving up control of our narrative and listening afresh to it, it may be something that you've done a lot of. Um, but I suppose on a day like this, it feels important. Um, so as I say, I will tell stories today, but there's only one story that matters, and that's your precious story uh, and your precious life. Um, I mean, I, I, I remember, I, you know, I remember for me, I was, when I was in my late 20s, so, you know, just after the accession of Queen Victoria, um, <laughs> I, I was on a silent retreat, I went on a silent retreat in North Wales in Penmine Mower, um, the Nodfer Retreat Centre it was my first silent retreat ever, so you know, it was a 10-day silent retreat. Uh, and I was, uh, I was a young priest in the Church of England. 
and I went there for some retreat. I turned up, and the other retreatants were just a load of old nuns. And I walked in, I thought, whoa, what is this? What have I, you know, what is this? What have I come to? This is not, you know, this is what, this is not what I was thinking. You know, here was me, young priest, Church of England, you know, right at the edge of the cutting edge spirituality. Um, I, I can't remember what was particularly cutting the edge at that point, but whatever it was, whatever it was, I was cutting it. And, uh, and then I just walk in self-nuns. What do they know? You know, me, me from busy London, West End, Edward Nuns. What have I come to? Lots of anger. Lots of anger. I had to take myself out. I went for a walk. In, and you may not know Penmine now, but it's, uh, it's an old mining town, a bit down, on, down the hill. It's down the hill now, but it's, uh, it has a seafront. And on the seafront, they were smashing rocks in order to build a new road, the foundations for a new road. And there was, this, there was this big rock, almost as wide, not quite as wide as this one, but almost as wide as this one. And tall, almost, probably was as tall as this big rock, big granny thing, grey. And they were, they were swinging you near know, the killing ball at it, the wrecking ball, smashing it with this big ball and a big rock sitting there. I'm a rock. I'm not, you know, I'm not moving. Uh, and I, I was just gripped by this. I was watching, you know, the wrecking ball smashing against it, and I was just sitting there. I'm a rock. And uh, but after about the sixth one, the sixth one came in. The wrecking ball came in, and the rock was sitting there saying, "I'm a rock." Gone. Gone in a million pieces. And I thought, "Oh, God." Um, And I just went back in a million pieces and lived the retreat. Um, and it was probably, probably the most formative 10 days of my life, probably. Um, but I'd arrived with distrust. Um, and I'd arrived with quite a lot of anger and uh, quite a lot of judgment. So here we are. Here we are on this little adventure of a day hugely brave of you to come. And I'm seeing, to tell a little story, so there's a, huge, there's a jug on the shelf. You can imagine a jug sitting on the shelf, it's a big jug, got a wide bottom, but quite a narrow top, so you can't really see what's inside it. Sitting on the shelf, you've never really looked at it, but obviously it holds a lot inside. It's a very wide bottom, but quite narrow at the top, so you can't really see very much inside. And it's sitting on the shelf, um, and there's something else you can see. Actually, this is quite a heavy, it's quite a heavy jug, and the shelf isn't very strong. So, hmm, is it going to hold? Not sure. Um, looks like it might break, but it might not. But it's hardly a major concern. So we've got a jug on a shelf, and that's where it stays. Uh, and in a way, this story doesn't have an ending, which is disappointing. I mean, I mean, maybe the jug just does stay there. Maybe it just stay, this big jug holding all this stuff, maybe it just stays on the shelf. Or maybe, oh, it's a different ending, maybe one day, actually the shelf can't hold it anymore. The jug falls, 
smashes on the ground, spilling everywhere, leaving you kneeling in a mess. Uh, sort of trying to clean things up, trying to sort things out. Uh, that's another ending. Or maybe, uh, maybe one day you actually go up and you, you lift the jug off the shelf and you bring it down and you, you perhaps you have a large bowl and you, you pour the jug out to see what's inside of it. You pour it out to see, oh, what's here? Oh, that's interesting. So, quite a sort of, it's, a, so it's a matter of choice. You're not kneeling in a mess. You're actually a matter of choice and you're just saying, yeah, oh, that's interesting. So there are various endings. Um, all we know is that this jug, this big jug that is quite wide at the bottom, quite narrow at the top, so you can't see very much, this jug contains your life story in its entirety. Just like the body holds everything. And this jug holds it all. And I suppose, you know, for all of us, uh, our story is that sometimes the jug has just stayed on the shelf for years. And we've sort of walked past it and noticed it a little bit, but tried to carry on with life anyway. Uh, maybe other times in our lives, it's just smashed down. It's broken the shelf, it's smashed onto the floor, and it's left us kneeling, crying, screaming, with the mess and the damage done. And I suppose at other times in our lives, we've been able to just sit with our story gently, and with no judgment at all, and just listen to it, and say, ah, oh, okay. Mainly if you're listening to our feelings, because our feelings are the clue to our story. We don't remember everything, but every feeling, every feeling, we know that. And of course, feelings are the golden thread back to the past. So I suppose maybe that's what we're doing today. This is one of those times when we're taking the shelf, taking the jug off the shelf and just pouring it gently out and just seeing what is there to see. That's quite a lot of words. I'm just going to stop for a couple of minutes. Um... And you could either, you could do two things. You could, I mean, one of the things, there's a lot of daffodils around at the moment. I'm very aware of daffodils around. Of course, some of them came out too early and got smashed by the storm. Just broken, just, just thrown into the mud like that, weren't they? Others, others came out and they're just leaning, but they're really bent. They've survived, they haven't hit the mud yet, but they're, whoa. Um, some, some actually haven't really, some I think are a bit cautious, there are some that are a bit cautious and they're not, they're not wanting to flower yet. They're thinking, it's not safe. Let's just keep here. Let's keep hidden. Let's wait till better times. Um, other daffodils actually are standing there big and strong and big trumpets, trumpets of hope. So you could think, well, if I was a daffodil, what sort of daffodil am I today? That's one way to use the quad. How do you feel? Is your face in the mud? Uh, are you bent? Are you cold? Are you thinking, hmm, things are a bit cautious at the moment, I'm just 
want to stay down underneath a little bit longer. Or do you feel, way? Hey, I'm strong, I'm all right, bring it on. Uh, or you could just listen to your breathing and see what arising in you. Uh, just, I'm going to stop for a couple of minutes and then I'm going to continue. One of my favourite books is a book by a woman called Alice Miller. And, uh, uh, sorry. and it's a book called The Body Never Lies. And she talks about how the body holds everything. And the body is much wiser than our head. Because our head lies all the time. But the body never lies because it's, it's the holder of all the feelings of the past. And so I always think listening to our bodies on days like this is an important important part of the day. Um, and I'm going to read the sto a story called The Firewoman. Um, because this is, obviously, this is a story about you. But I don't know, I don't know at what point in the story you come in or leave. Uh, and it's, it's rooted in a true, in a, in, a, in a genuine dream. A woman once had a dream. She dreamt she was a fire. She dreamt she was a fire. A blazing fire full of colour and life. She was a firewoman. Uh, and then suddenly against her will she finds forming around her a thick crust of lava. And it begins to choke uh, and to smother the fire. It begins to stifle the life that is her. And now in the dream, the woman is outside her body of fire, beating at the crust, trying to break it, to loosen its claustrophobic grip, to give the fire inside a chance to breathe, the fire once so bright and vivid. But she beats in vain, for as her arms begin to ache and tire, the crust thickens, and soon the air-starved fire is extinguished. The woman is extinguished. In her dream, the life in her is extinguished. So it's, uh, it's a story about what life does to us and how sometimes things give us life and how sometimes things take away life. Uh, and so the firewoman finds herself gradually encrusted by this lava and it's as though the fire has gone out. Her existence has almost gone out. Then we return to the story. The woman in her dream was a figure of fire, alive and burning bright. Slowly, however, and against her will, an encrusting mass began to grow around her, choking her into unconsciousness and leaving her for dead. Time passed. The fire figure lay enclosed in the airless dark, 
suffocated by the thick crust around her. There was no way out. In her chill dying, she remembered faintly what she had once been was, but was too weak now to imagine any going back. The enveloping substance was overpowering and final, permitting only itself. Yet, as she dared to remember what once had been, she sensed strange change. For as she remembered, her cold bones spawned wisps of random flame, dancing surprisingly into life from her body. Weak flickers at first, but each encouraging another, and then another still. The airless dark, once the ally of the crust, began instead to aid the fire, becoming a conduit of heat and light to the imprisoning lava. And soon, fractured by the heat, the first crack appeared in the crust, after which there appeared another. The fire figure breathed new air, responding with fresh burning, purple and red, green and blue, yellow and orange. The fire figure found again her truest and most brilliant colours. In the face of such heat, the lava crusts splintered and cracked in disintegration. It was a good coming home. Um, and I suppose I, I tell that story because I think for, for most of us, there are times when um, we lose life envelops us and actually we lose something quite important about ourselves. We just know something has died. And then this rebirth, somehow or other, situation changes, somehow we come alive again. Um, but we may lose ourselves again. I think, you know, life, life is difficult. You know, Scott Peck, in his, the opening three words of The Road Less Travelled, well, I suppose was the first self-help book, really. Um, uh, his, his opening three words are, life is difficult. And uh, I like that beginning, because it is. And sometimes life seems to destroy us. It has huge power over us. Um, and other times, it's actually the conduit of our recovery. I don't know where you are, you know, I don't know where you are today. Um, but wherever, wherever you are, there's always a coming home. Um, but these things can creep up on us. Um, the lava can appear almost so slowly, we don't notice the fire going out. So I think I've just before we before we take a break, I think I'd just like to just consider some of the mechanics really of how we work. Um, go underneath the bonnet, and Kate has already um, sort of hinted at this when she was talking about our thoughts uh, earlier on when she was leading the meditation. Because there is that phrase to describe human beings. And I like it, I think it's, it's very accurate. Um, it's not wholly complimentary, but um, 
I think it's, it is very accurate, where you human beings, the title of human beings is normal crazy people. So, normal crazy people. Um, that's, that's, that's our sort of starting point. Um, so we're just going to stay with, stay with those ideas just for a short moment. So when I say normal, normal is not to be mistaken, obviously, for healthy. Uh, there's, there's nothing healthy about normal. I mean, it may be healthy, but it, it, there is no connection between the two. Uh, you know, if, if we are normal, it just means that we are accepting the norms and obeying the norms around us. So, in certain, in certain situations, um, taking, a group of, taking a group of Jewish people to a gas chamber is entirely normal. Uh, because that's, that's the prevailing culture. So there's nothing, there's nothing abnormal about that. Because it's the prevailing culture. So, you know, for some, um, for some it's normal to be racist because, well, it's the environment I was brought up in. Well, that's the climate in the office. It's normal, it's normal. Get over it, it's normal. It's no big deal, it's normal. Um, uh, it might be, it's normal to be anxious. Well, of course I'm anxious, I'm a grandparent. I mean, who wouldn't be anxious? It's normal. My mother was anxious about me, she was on the phone three times a day. I mean, no, she means, she, she means well, it's because she cares. Of course, who wouldn't be anxious? It's normal. You know, some people think it's normal um, to want to make money, to link money with happiness. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> it's entirely normal. Uh, the more money I have, the happier will I be, obviously. Um, some people think it's quite normal to think that being gay is a sin, because everybody else in the congregation does. And the bloke at the front does. So, and my parents do. So it's normal, it's, it's normal. So when we say that we're normal, we're not saying anything necessarily complimentary about ourselves. We're just saying that we're actually tying in with the prevailing winds around us, yeah? That's normal. Um, so we're normal people because there are strong winds blowing around us. We, we bend with them. Because then there's the word, there's the crazy bit, which is different. Um, crazy is just about the truth that Kate was picking up on earlier. Because crazy is the fact that we do insane things because we're in the thrall of automatic thoughts. Um, so all of us live with automatic thoughts inside us. So there's, there is some dispute about how many thoughts we have a day. It's difficult to count them. Um, but I, various figures. But I, the last one I saw, quite an authoritative one, was 70,000. So we have 70,000 thoughts uh, a day, and another statistic, I won't have too many statistics, but another statistic 
So we have 70,000 thoughts a day. And the, again, after quite a lot of research, 97% of them, 97% of them are the same as yesterday. <laughs> so, and they, and they weren't true then. So here we are, we are these people, we're walking around in the world pretending to be the same, but we're having 70,000 thoughts a day. 97% of them are the same as yesterday, and they weren't true then. So, uh, and, we, and we think we're healthy, you know, we think, we think we're healthy. Um, so, there, you know, there is something sort of, we're, sort of it's, we're on a sort of dull treadmill of delusion. Just way away. Same old thoughts, same thoughts as yesterday, uh, and they weren't true then. And we go round and round with the same old lies. So, I, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I am glad to be alive, but I'm also conscious that there is a huge amount of mistakenness in me and a huge th amount of it that's stale. So, you know, our subconscious is peopled by repetitive thoughts that we learned in our early years when the brain was forming, those crucial early years, very early years, when the hard wiring was taking place. Um, but, of course, we bring those thoughts into adult life and they, they just make us stupid, and they make us unhappy. You know, uh, you know, everyone's talking about well-being and mental health these days. I think the more we talk about it, the less we do. But, uh, um, you know, you hear people saying, well, do you know, apparently one in four have mental health issues. <laughs> one in four. <sighs> four out of four. Four out of four, you know, four out of four have mental health issues. Because, you know, we are in the thrall of automatic thoughts. Uh, and some of us handle them better than others, but we've all got issues. Um, I certainly have. I mean, Harvard, Harvard University did a big study. They, they reckoned again, that 96% of people are not in control of their mental faculties. Uh, 96% of people are not in control of their mental faculties, you know. Um, so that's, you know, that's a large number of the cabinet. Um, so 96% of people, so, so, so obviously only 4% of people are not crazy or not, not in the thrall of automatic thought. Now, these figures, you know, obviously statistics are statistics, but for me there's a sense of truth here, only because I know myself. There's a sense of truth here, that um, we're not in control of our automatic thoughts. Uh, and so, for, you know, the start of wisdom, uh, for me, is to realise my own madness. Uh, which is not a popular message. You know, it's not really very popular. People want much for something more positive than that. Um, and you, obviously you will come to your own conclusions. Uh, but for me, the beginning of wisdom is to realise my own madness and to, to realise how long I spend listening to voices that are lies and, you know, which shape so many of my perceptions but also make me very unhappy. Um, I mean, for me, to realise my own madness is a very liberating moment because now I can begin to look after myself. I can't look after myself if I think I'm sane. 
because there, there won't be anything to look after. Hey, you're saying, let's go. Um, uh, but if I'm insane, then I can begin to look after myself and handle my uh, insanity. Because suddenly I'm alive to what's going on inside me. Um, and I can begin to perhaps dissolve some of the suffering that these lies cause me. So, you know, imagine, imagine if our automatic thoughts... Imagine if we actually began to look after automatic thoughts so we didn't believe them anymore. Imagine, for instance, if, you know, we didn't believe the anxious voice anymore. Whoa, God, that'd be, uh, that'd be quite liberating, wouldn't it? Or imagine if we didn't believe that voice that arises out of our need for control, which becomes this catastrophizing voice. Yeah, well, that could happen. Well, that could happen. Well, that could happen. Yeah, well, that could happen. And we've imagined a hundred catastrophes way down the line. That's around our need for control. To have got there before it actually happens so we, we can respond to it. Obviously it's a lie. Because the future doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. So all our catastrophizing is just fantasy. But it's around our need for control. So it's, it's a lying voice. You know, you need to control, control the future. But it's not, you know, and these automatic thoughts, you know, catastrophizing, when it's on automatic, which it is for, for many of us, it just goes on and on and on. It's there, there, and there. It was there yesterday, there today, it'll be there tomorrow. All the things that we just do it. Same with the anxious thoughts, you know. It's there every day. Little loop in our heads. So imagine, you know, imagine the freedom, obviously, uh, if those thoughts began to be looked after. We're not, going to, we're not going to try and sort of say, go away, go away, bad thoughts, bad thoughts, bad thoughts. Because that doesn't do anything, obviously, we know that. But if we could say, oh, hello, thought. Hello, anxious thought. It's you again, my dear friend. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, you know, your time, your time is up now. I don't need you anymore. So if you could just, you know, it's a Swedish day. Thank you for coming. Thank you for going. And we pass it on. Or, you know, the catastrophizing voice. Oh, hello, catastrophizing voice. Thank you. Thank you for coming. But I don't need you anymore. I know, I know in the past you helped me to feel insecure. <laughs> to feel insecure when I was this big. And I could, I could imagine the situation so I could plan them out and feel secure about sorting them. But actually, you're not helping them now. That was there, this is now. So thank you for coming and thank you for all you did to help me when I was smaller. But actually, I don't need you now, so as the Swedish say, thank you for coming, and thank you for going. Um, and it doesn't mean they won't come back tomorrow, but of course, you'll just greet them again and say the same thing. Um, so we won't stop being mad, we won't suddenly stop being mad, we'll always be mad. But we can begin to look after our insanity, you know, we befriend our insanity. And I think what happens then is that it can't kidnap us for so long. So I can still be kidnapped by thoughts. Um, more powerfully, I can be kidnapped by feelings, but they're harder to spot. Uh, thoughts are easier to spot, feelings are harder to spot. I can still be kidnapped, but, but maybe not for so long. So maybe I could be kidnapped by a thought for half a day, now maybe just half an hour. So. It's a little bit more sane, 
although I am still mad, but I'm handling it. I'm beginning to handle it, and it's, it's, it, has, it has less power over me. I can't be kidnapped for quite so long. So, you know, um, are we here now? Are we here now? Um, I mean, perhaps we're not here now. Some of us, some of us might be. I'm, uh, you know, perhaps some of us are still locked in old automatic thoughts from the past. They're just coming back, coming back. Maybe they're passing through you now. Uh, I don't know what they're doing, but they're probably doing something. But maybe we're, we're locked into the past, so we're not actually here now. Just some old stale thoughts that we, we coming up again, which we're very familiar with. Coming to some sort of judgments, probably. Um, or perhaps, you know, perhaps we're, uh, we're in the future. Perhaps we're uh, like, you know, a kite in the wind of insane predictions about the future, um, which doesn't exist. Perhaps we're sitting here thinking, what about this? What about that? Well, that could go wrong. Or this. Or that. So, you know, being here now is actually quite, is, is quite difficult. It's quite unusual. Because automatic thoughts are tending, either, you know, we're locked into the past with automatic thoughts because that's where they come from. Or, you know, insane predictions about the future which doesn't exist. Which could be, which could be anxious, which could be catastrophizing. But obviously, the question is, are we here now? Am I here now? Um, am I here now? Or am I just some, you know, uh, sad spiritual salesman uh, purveying ideas to other people because it's easier than facing myself? Uh, or just another bloke up the front with a sort of sad saviour complex? Um, you know, what am I doing? How is this compulsive? Or, you know, am I here now? I love the line, so here we are. I think I want to spend my whole life saying it whenever I meet anyone, so here we are. We're here. Just in this moment. I think when I can say, so here we are, I'm actually sane, just for a moment. So it's very nice to stand here now and say, it's a moment of sanity. Um, so here we are. Not in the past, automatic thoughts. Not flying some insane kite into the winds of the future. Um, just here now. Listening to our breathing and seeing what's arising. I think the most important thing today is that we're kind to ourselves. See, we're listening without any sort of judgment at all. Uh, I think probably you should be actually listening in admiration because of the journey you've travelled. Because in this room, some remarkable journeys have been travelled. I don't know you, but I do know some remarkable journeys have been travelled. I also know um, that uh, you've got much more, genuine, this is genuine, that you've got much more to teach me than I've got to teach you. Um, because you know everything you need to know. Um, 
So we're just listening. We're just listening today uh, without any sort of judgment. Uh, listening to the narratives we tell ourselves, listening to the feelings in our body. Perhaps noting some of the automatic thoughts that are the most persistent ones. You know, it would be nice, it would be nice if 97% of our thoughts every day weren't the same as yesterday and they were wrong yesterday. Be nice if actually some fresh thoughts began to emerge, that'd be quite nice. So it might mean letting go of some thoughts, you know, beginning to say, oh, hello, it's you again, letting them go. Um, and I know uh, there was a woman, she, had, she was on a retreat I was doing, who, she was saying that, uh, we're talking about things, letting go of things, and obviously it quite helps to name them. So you know, if there's a particular thought that's a regular thing that comes into you, which is a lie, but it keeps coming back very strongly, you, you give it a name. You say, oh, hello Marjorie, whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're called Marjorie, isn't it? <laughs> but I, there, was a woman, there was a woman on retreat who, who had a you know, big image, some problems around her body image and how she looked at herself. And so this, you know, this for her came back again and again. And then she began to go into a spiral of self-judgment and, and suffering, but it was, it just came, and it was an automatic thought that she found it very hard to sort of um, push away. And so she called it Donald. And I mean, you may be a fan, but she called it Donald, Donald Trump. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, controversial. So the thing is, that what she's, what, the reason why she did that was, she said, I don't believe anything Donald Trump says. So when this, when this thought comes along, I don't believe it either. And that worked for her. Now, I mean, you may be a fan of Donald Trump, but if that for her, that for her worked. She called it Donald. She called the thought Donald. And she, it was, it was, it's, it's about dismantling its power. It isn't about, it's not going to suddenly stop coming, but it's about dissolving its power. Um, and you will know what has power over you. And I know what power has power over me. And you know, maybe naming it, that was that, for this woman, that was, that was a helpful way. So, so I'm going to tell her just another, just another story now as we settle in. Um, So uh, the story called uh, story called Jason the Juggler. So we're just setting back in. Oh my goodness, the things you've had to do this week, and the rush this morning to get away, get here. Uh, all the things you've got to think about. Things weighing heavily on you. Responsibilities you've got. Uh, thinking about Jason the Juggler. When I saw Jason the Juggler on the pavement, um, I didn't know what to think. And the crowd were puzzled too, and a little bit angry. Because Jason the Juggler was sitting down with the props of his trade surrounded by them. And he was looking at each one in turn. Balls, bean bags, rings and clubs, I'd seen him use them all. But now, he's put them down. 
And of course, you know, sometimes he worked with other jugglers in partnership, sometimes he worked alone. But you've always got to keep the props moving. Got to keep them in the air. Nothing dropped. Not ever. You must never drop a prop. So you had to keep the show moving. Every ball, every beanbag, every club, every orange. You've got to keep the show on the road. I mean, he'd even worked with knives and torches in his more dangerous days. In truth, Jason had worked with whatever he was told to work with, whatever life gave him. He'd kept it in the air. And that's how it had always been until exhaustion came knocking. And now he's put them all down. And he seems to be at peace, sitting there on the pavement. In fact, I've never seen such a smile on his face as he looks at each prop in turn. And from here on, he says quietly, I juggle only what I wish to juggle. I may not even juggle at all. The crowd don't like that, because they like Jason when he's juggling. So they're a little bit angry. But Jason doesn't mind, because he says, this is my time now. So we're here today in the beautiful Dartio Centre. And just for a moment we can put down all the balls and beanbags and oranges and fire torches. We don't have to juggle. And it doesn't matter if the crowd gets angry, because this is your time. Maybe you'll juggle again, maybe you won't. And that'll be your choice. But we're putting everything down and um, sort of feeling around inside ourselves for something more authentic. Um, we're thinking about the whole normal crazy thing of what it is to be human. That feels quite truthful to me. But that's only one telling of the human story, obviously. That's a sort of, that's a negative telling. I mean, I think it's truthful. Because sometimes truth is negative. Um, but is there, is there another telling, you know, is there another telling of the story? Um, I suppose for me, the genius the genius in human beings is to be aware of the lie inside us, um, but also to be aware of the truth inside us. So I think in this session we're going to be fishing around for the truth. Um, I mean, the normal, the normal crazy person only thinks there's one narrative, and that's the narrative that the thoughts keep saying and have been saying for years, and will carry on saying until the end. 
That's the only narrative. If you go into a psychiatric unit, you won't have hear people saying, you know, you won't have some patients saying, that's interesting, I thought you could have had it another way. They won't be saying that. Because obviously, the insanity of all of us insists there is only one narrative, and it's this. Um, so, yeah, the definition of, of, of insanity is a one narrative person. Uh, there isn't, there isn't another way. You know, we, we joke about the person who thinks they're Napoleon. That's their narrative. It's the only narrative available. But of course, you know, <laughs> you know we will do, obviously we will do the same, and we may not think we're Napoleon, but uh, we do tend to have a, in our down times, we tend to have a single narrative that we stick to. And it's, it's, it's based around automatic thoughts that come back again and again and again. And we've locked into this narrative. Um, but obviously, you know, there is, there's another story. Uh, there's a lovely letter, if we had more time, but there's a lovely letter, and you may know it, a letter written by Ted Hughes and his son. When uh, his son was having a difficult time, the poet Ted Hughes, his son's having a difficult time, he's about 24, and on his book he wrote a letter, and you can go online, you'll find it. But he basically, in the letter, he's saying, he's saying to him that you know, life, he's sort of saying, life is difficult. He says the trouble is, if you only meet, he says people are primary self and secondary self. And that's the phrase Ted Hughes used. And he said, if you only meet someone's secondary self, it's quite difficult. Because it's quite sort of limiting, claustrophobic and crushing. Um, and I think for me, we've been talking about the secondary self, you know, this morning. So then he talks about the primary self. He said, the trouble is you don't often meet the primary self. I think it was really interesting that, um, <coughs> that Ted Hughes come, comes up with that, because obviously that has a long history in terms of uh, spirituality. You know, a Jewian of Norwich would call about, talk about the substantial self and insubstantial self, which is exactly the same. And so it doesn't really matter what, what we use, whether, you know, false, true self or false self, whatever words seem best to us. But, um, you know, for, uh, for Ted Hughes, it was a primary self and secondary self. And he was saying to his son, if you only meet the secondary self in someone, it's going to be hard because there's not, much, there's not much sort of life there. It's a bit automatic. It's quite stale. So, you know, the, the, the primary narrative inside us, which we're going to look at, is, you know, is like a sort of beautiful, polished wooden floor, you know, if that's beautiful for you. If something else is beautiful, replace the floor. That's, that's the image I'm using, beautiful, polished wooden floor. That's the primary self. And then the secondary self is some sort of cheap nylon overlay that we've put over it. Um... So, in order to help us to listen to our own story, we're going to listen to, in, into this. We're going to listen to a story, a true story, Layla's story. Name changed, but apart from that, absolutely true. So, Layla is talking to me. Um, 
she's concerned that her, uh, and uh, Layla is, gosh, I don't know how old Layla is, maybe she's probably in her 50s. Uh, Layla is concerned that her older sister had strong opinions and she doesn't. So her older sister knows, knows exactly what she thinks about everything. Uh, but Layla doesn't know what she thinks about everything. So Leila sort of tended, for all her life, Leila tended to go to other people for um, advice about what to do. Even though this does irritate her, you know, because I should know what to do myself. Why do, I, why do I have to go to other people for advice all the time? I mean, my sister, she knows exactly what to do. But I, but I don't. Um, because obviously Leila didn't consider her own voice uh, to be as valuable as other people's voices. And so as we talked, two narratives inside Layla became apparent. So the first narrative is of a girl who was told by her father she was a mistake, as a kind thought, and used by her mother, basically... Uh, as a place where her mother could tell her how bad her father was. Um, so her mother was unhappy in the relationship and her daughter was a place where she could sort of speak of her woes. You know, women's talk. I'm just going to put this on you. Because I can't tell him. So we'll talk about it. So, unsurprisingly, Layla became a very good listener. Because, obviously, by listening, that was the only way she could get her mother's attention. So, really, from the age of three or four, in incremental ways, Layla was parenting her mother. But listening was the only way she would get her attention. And Layla did learn, as life went on, that if she began to have views or opinions of her own, uh, her mother squashed them. Because that wasn't the deal. The deal was that her mother could tell Layla about how difficult her life was. Oh, and another thing. Do you know what he did today? Um, and so obviously, uh, Layla didn't, was taught quite early on not to have a voice. Um, she wasn't to have her own views and she wasn't to have her own opinions because that wasn't the deal. And then look at later in life, of course, uh, when Layla uh, had a daughter herself, of course, what she realised, what was happening was actually she wanted her daughter to be her mother. So the cycle sort of began, she realised the cycle was beginning to repeat itself. Because she hadn't really had a mother who listened to her, she wanted her daughter to listen to her. So she began to see that that was, you know, that was what was, what was happening there. So this sort of codependent pattern was repeating itself. And she noticed also that she found herself tense in anyone's presence. She said, I always feel tense with other people because there is a sense in her that she should be helping them. 
because that was where her, her identity was formed in this role. So whenever she's with someone, other people, she feels that she should be helping them. Even with her husband, who isn't asking for help. You know, he's not asking for help. But she's still feeling, oh, I need to help him. And then her mind's become busy with anxious thoughts about how she could help. So in this narrative, Layla only exists when she's helping someone. And when people are around, there's a degree of tension in her. But of course, this narrative overlays and obscures another narrative inside Layla. And it's this narrative that she's beginning to recover now. And she remembers, it's interesting, she remembers a work training day. And the facilitator put a lot of words up on the board. And he asked them all to uh, choose three words which seemed important to them. So, you know, facilitator puts lots of words up on the board, choose three words that seem important to you. And, um, of course, a number of people you know, looked at all these words, there was lots of, lots of words there, and they, they, they couldn't decide at all. And they, and they asked the facilitator, well, we need more time, we can't just do it in three minutes. Um, but Layla, Layla was there instantly. Instantly. She chose three words, and the words were um, truth, spirituality, love. I don't know what the other words on the board were, but those, she chose those straight away. Really interesting though. So she didn't need anyone to advise her. She didn't turn to a neighbour and say, well, what do you think? She just knew. She knew, you know. Uh, they weren't words from her head, they were from her gut, they were from deep knowing. And she says, when I'm close to this, she says, when I'm close to this, I am at one with life. I remember when she said that to me, I said, whoa, I am at one with life. She said, the tension goes, I know the indivisibility of all things. I exist as space in which life arises. Paradoxically, I exist and I don't exist. So this is a very, very different sort of narrative going on. Very different story. And she tells, she tells the story, she said, as a 12-year-old, a friend asked her, who would you try and save if they were drowning in a lake? You know, it's his old thing, so which members of the family and which of your friends would you think it worthwhile they jump into, you know, a lake for? That's the sort of thing we do. So she said, you know, who would you try and save if they were drowning in a lake? So basically, who are the worthwhile people in your life? And who are the others who are not so important? So she asked her friend if she could go away and think about it. Uh, and, and she would let her know tomorrow, and she did. And she came back the next day and she said to her friend, uh, I would try and save everyone, she said. Uh, she said, so as a child, she knew of this indivisibility, this oneness. So it wasn't, you know, my family right or wrong, you know, or, yeah, my family, their friends, everyone else can go hang. Or all English people, the people from Iran, no, you know, it wasn't, she wasn't dividing. 
She wasn't dividing up into all the units that we divide up into. Even as a 12-year-old, she could see that was nonsense. She was talking about, indiv- you know, she used the word indivisibility, the oneness. So in this narrative, Layla's narrative, there is no busy mind, there is no anxious thoughts. And I know deep down everything is okay. And of course, this is her primary narrative. This is, this is the true Layla. But it's obviously it's obscured, overlaid um, by a secondary narrative that was created by the formation um, of circumstances in her childhood uh, that gave her a particular role and was a very important part of the hard wiring going on inside her. And the role was of someone who helped other people, who listened, who didn't have a voice, who needed other people to tell them what to do. But of course her primary self knows exactly what to do. She knew what to do on that work training day. She went straight to the words. And also she knew when her friend asked her that difficult question, even when she was 12, she knew there was something she knew. And so she's obviously, you know, she's living with those two narratives inside her. And you know, they're both, they're both powerful. Um, and she called, and when she when she talks about spirituality, which I mean, I never, obviously none of us know what it means. But when she talks about spirituality, it's anything which helps her reconnect with her primary narrative. Anything, anything that takes her towards that that primary self, that true self, that that substantial self. Because um, obviously, sometimes life takes you in the opposite direction. Um, and it's difficult at the moment because she's now trying to dismantle this codependent relationship with her daughter because so she's seen it for what it is. Uh, and of course, that's, that's difficult, but it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. And there's a lot of joy as well. It's important to say that. She said she was, she, the, the last story she told me, she said, I was washing up after supper recently. She said, I put my hands in the warm water and I felt such joy. She cried with joy with her hands in the warm washing up water. And she cried with joy because she was at one with all things. So Layla is living with these two narratives and hopefully she'll live, she'll live with them kindly and she's looking for ways in her life um, to stay close to something true uh, and also, you know, being more aware of the secondary narrative that can invade quite powerfully because it's got very strong roots in her past. And so suddenly spirituality has a very particular life for her because she knows what it's about and what, it, what purpose it's serving for her as opposed to for someone else. This is why it's very difficult to impose spiritualities on people um, because we all need such different things. Um, and the only, the only important thing is that we know what we need and what's helpful for us to keep us close to that fire. And we're going to be thinking about that uh, more this afternoon, about what it is um, that can help us to stay close to the fire that is us.
to something authentic, something um, primary. Now, in a moment, in a moment, we're going to do just a very simple and short sort of visualization. Um, but I suppose before that, I would like—I just—I'm going to—I'm just going to come back to the secondary self, just briefly, because I would like us to be accurate about it, because it's no use me saying, oh yeah, my secondary self, it's so powerful, oh, oh, it's terrible. So then someone says, well, what is your secondary self? Oh, uh, well, it could be specific, you know, it's always terrible. But that isn't really, none of us have really helped by that. We do need to be very sort of specific, <coughs> accurate about us. You know, it might be, it might be that we can see other people's secondary selves quite easily. Uh, but it's obviously harder. It's harder for us to see our own um, because we've grown up with it, and we we think that's what it is to be a human being. Obviously, it isn't. We're all freaks, you know. <laughs> we are all freaks, um, but we have to understand our own freakery in order to to walk free. So, to generalise talk about a secondary self really isn't very helpful for us. Unless we're able to say, ah, yeah, okay, that's what it looks like inside me. Not inside you, but inside me. So I, I was just going to just run through very quickly. Um, it's, a, it's a slightly bleak list, but I only mention them because you can't say goodbye to something until you say hello to it. Once you say hello to it, you can say goodbye to it. But if we're ignoring it, or we're unaware of it, we're not saying goodbye. So this is a chance for us to say goodbye, to say hello to something, and maybe then the purpose of that is so we can say goodbye to it. So it is a fairly bleak list, but we're just going to go through just some of the things, some of the aspects that the secondary self takes on. Now, most of these won't apply to you, but maybe, maybe one or two of them, maybe three or four of them, uh, maybe they will, they'll be more pertinent. So just, just listen, just see, does that strike any, any chords? Do you strike a chord, ring a bell? Whatever it is, anyway, whatever it's doing. Um, we're going to listen to these. They're, they're sometimes called emotional schema. But they're just patterns, they're patterns of behaviour that are there in the secondary self. Okay, I won't take too long on them, but we'll just, we'll just whip through. So... Um, so the first, the first one is resignation. Resignation. So, you know, we say, this is the way life is. Nothing's going to change it. Deep-lying cynicism, lack of hope. I'm not really into sort of gender things particularly because I think the genders cross over all the time. But I do, I think this is, this is mainly a male thing. It's quite often the sort of, you know, the father's wisdom, you know. That's the way it is, son. I remember my father telling me, he was a really wise man, he said to me, that's the way it is, son. Get used to it, nothing's going to change. And I thought, what a wise man. Resignation. It's a deep cynicism under, underlying that. It's the way it is, mate. Get used to it. Life's a bitch, I mean, you die. 
sometimes passes for wisdom. It's not wisdom, it's secondary self. It's um, rooted in cynicism, rooted in despair, rooted in depression. Um, okay, mistrust. Mistrust. Is the second one? Mistrust. So constant suspicion that those close to us will betray us. Um, it's not really very hard to see the roots of that. And so I won't spend much time on that one. But mistrust. So a constant suspicion that those close to us will betray us. Um, and that, uh, obviously the consequence of that is quite fearful, quite fearful living. Um, subjugation. It's the third one. Subjugation. So that's always giving in to other people's wants or demands, our life seemingly defined by other people. So, you know, it's the doormat. Uh, oh, yes, I'll do that. I'll do, yes, I'll do that. Um, because it's a way of, well, if I do that for them, then they will like me. Subjugation. So it can look, it can look like a virtue. It isn't a virtue, it's a compulsion. It's, I'm doing these things because if I do them, you will like me. And I don't exist if you don't like me. So actually, it's quite related, it's a bit similar to Leila. Subjugation. She existed in relationship to her mother's needs. Um, subjugation. Um, always giving to other people's wants or demands, our life seemingly defined by the people. The fourth, fourth one is relentless perfectionism. Relentless perfectionism uh, usually accompanied by a fear of blame, obviously. That's, well, that's the root of perfectionism, it's a fear of blame. You know, when, when some people have job interviews, and you, know, you go ask that stupid question, you know, what's your biggest failure? And um, people, usually, people usually either say, yeah, you know, I just trust people too much, I think. They either say that, or they say, well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a perfectionist, they say. <laughs> Uh, as if that's a good thing. Obviously, you never want to work with a perfectionist. Uh, they're a nightmare in any organisation. They're going to they're going to micromanage. Uh, that's one thing they're going to do. Uh, the other thing is they may not finish jobs because they are very aware that when a job is finished, it can be judged. And there's nothing that's fit that makes a perfectionist more frightened than their job being judged. So they might often procrastinate quite a lot. And you keep thinking, well, why haven't they finished that job? Well, as soon as they finished it, it could be judged. So they're terrified of that. So you know, the relentless perfectionist, obviously the root of that is, in, you know, is a long way back and around a real fear of blame. I must get this right. I must get this right. Absolute terror. But um, the relentless perfectionist... Uh, okay. Anxious thoughts, and we've thought briefly about those. A mind always creating things to worry about when one anxiety is calmed, another arises. So anxiety, obviously we all know that it's never worth calming someone's anxiety. That is an entire waste of time. Because anxiety is a state. It's not about one thing, it's a state. And so if, you, if someone's anxious about well, am I going to better catch the bus in time? Yes, you will better catch the bus in time. Because if you just leave that, leave that. Now, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, but what if it doesn't go? Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Um, 
worth it. Um, I was talking to someone again yesterday, actually, who, was, who feels like they're in a marriage with an anxious person, and that they keep trying to sort, of sort out their anxieties, and it doesn't work. And they don't really know what to do. So anxiety is a state. Um, it's an anx- anxious thoughts. Um, because uh, when one anxiety is calmed, another one appears. So, again, that's a sign of secondary self. Um, uh, another one is emotional deprivation. Emotional deprivation. Um, so this, I think, is a sense of someone who doesn't feel that they were emotionally held when young. And it's very hard to make up for that. So that's, say, take Vincent Van Gogh. Um, he talks about a young sapling caught too young in the frost. A young sapling caught too young in the frost. And he says it's very hard for that then to recover. And so emotional deprivation, um, a sense of inner coldness, a desire to be held, but also a fear of being held. Because it's never been modelled for them. They don't know what it is to be held. And so in adult life, they're going to have very ambivalent relationships towards being held. You know, Vincent van Gogh, I mean, he, in one way, you know, his, his yellow house in Arles, he, he wanted a community, he wanted to be held. He always wanted to be held. He got into difficult relationships. But then also he was always pushing people away because he was always getting angry with them. He didn't really know how it was to be held. Because he'd suffered as a, you know, as a young sapling in a very, a very cold family environment. So emotional deprivation and obviously the things that we do to make up for that. Um, uh, feelings of vul- another one is feelings of vulnerability. So irrational fears that some incident or event might leave us jobless or homeless. Uh, fears, uh, feelings of vulnerability. I actually think this is quite closely related to the last one around it. Uh, a lack of holding when young, but it does mean that we, 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 have brought, we have brought into adult life from our past a feeling of extreme insecurity and vulnerability in the world. And I think it's partly because we've never known what it is to feel safe when young. And if we don't know what it is to feel safe when young, then we can't feel safe when we're adults. And so I know, you know, I know a man I know a man who owns five houses. He thinks he'd feel economically safe. He owns five houses and they're big ones. But he doesn't. He just spends his time thinking about the economic circumstances that could take place. That would mean he'd lost them all. So it's, you know, it's, there isn't a cure for it in adding to life. You know, the feelings of vulnerability. Obviously, it's an old story, not a new story but it's linked to something way back, but obviously it plays out in our secondary self. Um, uh, Fear of abandonment, constant apprehension that someone might leave us. That's another one, fear of abandonment. Constant apprehension that someone might leave us. That probably isn't very hard to um, identify its roots. Um, Entitlement, a sense that you are special and therefore somehow beyond other people's rules and limits. Entitlement. I think this is again. I think you know this is rooted again in the past. It's the grabbing. We feel we need to grab at things. You know, whatever it is we're grabbing at, 
it's money, food, relationships, whatever it is, there's some sense of deprivation there in the past, which means that we, we must grab. I'm entitled to that. I'm trying to make up for some loss, some absence in the past. And so I will grab. I'm entitled to that. Um, unlovability. Uh, fear that people would reject us if they really knew us. Again, that's not uncommon, that one. Um, unlovability. You know, the fear that if they, people really knew us, yeah, no, you don't really know me, but if you didn't know me, oh, you wouldn't like me. Uh, that's a sad one, isn't it? Imagine a child feeling that they're unlovable. They're outside the circle of love. And they don't know why. So they've got to keep, let's keep everything secret. Let's keep everything inside a secret. You know, if you really knew me, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me because that's my experience so far anyway. So, um, and we control, the need to control situations. There's another one, the need to control your external environment perhaps so you might be very controlling of you know of, of what other people do you're controlling what they do the environment is very important to control the external environment because internally there is chaos and so it's very very important that i control the external environment around me because I can't cope with the external mismirroring the internal. I need some control. I haven't got it here, but let's impose it outside. Um, so, with the, obviously, control it shows itself in many different ways, but that's that is one. Um, social exclusion, feeling that we don't quite belong. That's, that's another one, you know. We can, we can be with a group of friends and we feel like, you don't quite belong. Again, you know, Vincent van Gogh, you know, he always called himself a stranger in this world. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't feel he belonged. So, so he wasn't like Layla, for instance, who in her primary self knows that she is one with the world. She's one with the world. But for some of us, in our secondary self, I don't belong I'm somehow on the outside. Everybody else is having a great time getting on. They're all in there. But me, I'm outside it. I'm like looking in through the window. So the social exclusion, the fear that we don't belong. And finally, the last one, failure. Failure, the feeling that we cannot succeed what we do, and we never will. So we've got a strong inner critic. Strong inner critic. Nothing is good enough. We never get a break. We have never succeeded. We have never done anything well. Uh, so that sense of failure, really, 
in whatever they do. And so someone like that is very hard for them to receive a compliment. They can almost get angry if you give them a compliment. <laughs> I haven't done anything. I'm busy in a critic inside. Never done enough. Never done enough. You've never succeeded. So a sense of failure. So those are just, you know, it's a bleak old list. Um, but the great thing is, the great thing is, that those, you know, those things inside us, if, if any of those were any bells with you, you know, we're, any, our spirituality is a journey around saying goodbye to those. Um, and our, the spirituality that suits us is the spirituality that helps us deal with those aspects of our secondary self. And it may be that today other aspects of your secondary self become apparent. I mean, obviously, that's not a, that's not a complete list. But other things might be arising in you, thinking, oh, actually, that, that has been with me all my life. Uh, and I, I, perhaps I don't have to believe it anymore. I will trust this day. I will trust what happens and the way it works out. I will trust it comes to bless and has no intention other than to hold me in its loving arms. When I lose this trust, my behaviour becomes most odd. Sometimes I attempt to control situations and people or run around like a chicken in a panic. Perhaps I fill my head with noise or my life with activity. I may start the blame game with myself or others, become smug on my imaginary high ground, or perhaps declare in loud despair, it's all going wrong just like it always does. As I say, when I lose a sense of trust, my behaviour becomes most odd. So I will trust today and all it brings. For when it is so and the trust is strong, all is quite perfect and all is quite well. Um, so we're just thinking just about trust. And what's important there is that it's not saying I will trust the speaker. It's saying I will trust the day. and the way it's working out. So maybe it's making me angry. So I'm going to trust that anger and listen to it and speak with it. I'm just going to trust what's happening. So we're trusting this unfolding, which doesn't mean you're trusting me, but you're trusting the unfolding inside you, you're listening and seeing what's occurring. And then one thing will become another. I think what I'd like to do, in a moment, Kate's going to hand out a sheet with lots of words on it. And you're going to think about those words and if there are any that are applicable to you. Perhaps to lead us in, I'm going to tell a story um, which once was, I was really interested, I, I sometimes told it in schools, sometimes in primary schools. And it, I remember once when this story got anyone, anyone who's Done school assemblies will know that deep terror, you know, in the soul when you're you're risking yourself in front of people who aren't very polite, 
and have no vested interest in making you feel good. Um, and certainly, I can certainly remember one instance when I got completely crucified by a group of older children, and also by the staff, really. I think probably helped. But uh, so it's not always assemblies aren't always happy outcomes. But I remember this. I was remember doing, telling a story in a primary school, and at the end of it, they all applauded, which was no, it's not what normally happened when I went in, but it did. And I was really interested because I think of all the assemblies I did, this would be the one where I was thinking most. Oh, I'm not sure about telling this to children, but I did. So here we go. I've started, I, yeah, and so it is called. It, it, it is in the book The Journey Home, but it's in a slightly different version of it. But this is, this, is, this is the version today. And it's a story called Could Be Good News, Could Be Bad News. Um, so there was, there was once a young woman called Jeanette who was taking her driving test after failing the first time. Well, when she passed, her friends and family were delighted. Great news about you passing your driving test, they said. Well, could be good news, could be bad news, she said, refusing to predict, staying in the present. Well, a few months later, while driving her new car, after passing her test, Jeanette had an accident and hurt her shoulder quite badly. Her friends and family were horrified. Terrible news about the accident and the shoulder injury, they said. Ah, could be bad news. Could be good news, said Jeanette, refusing to predict, staying in the present. And on the path of recovery, Jeanette's physiotherapist was called John. And they got on very well. And later that year, they got engaged. Well, Jeanette's family and friends were absolutely delighted for her. Wonderful news about you getting engaged, Jeanette. Well, could be good news. <laughs> could be bad news, she replied, refusing to predict, staying in the present. And in the coming months, Jeanette discovered that two of John's family were very hostile towards her, which made her life very difficult. When her friends and family heard about this, they were absolutely furious. Terrible news about John's awful family, they said. Well, it could be bad news. It could be good news, replied Jeanette, refusing to predict, staying in the present. I mean, obviously the story can go on, but I think I'll sort of stop it there. So, you know, life, um, life's twists and turns and, you know, the hysterical, it's wonderful, and the sort of, oh, no, it's awful. And we sort of move between those two people responses that we get. Um, and, and so it's about how, we, how can we bring some sort of resilience to life where we don't get hysterical, but neither we go down into the, the deep pit of despair, but actually just stay present um, and bring some sort of resilience, some sort of authentic self to this situation. Um, neither hysterical nor depressed, just simply free and present. This is so. Here we are. So although we've listened to um, lots of stories about different people today, the only, the only important story 
is your story and you've brought it here today really courageously. And now you're just sitting with your story and just wondering, has anything here we had in a new light? Um, what's happened to my story today? Um, maybe not much has happened, that's okay. I think you know, these things are a bit like sitting on a sitting on a, on the shore, watching the tide come in, the tide go out. Sometimes it brings something small, sometimes it brings nothing, sometimes it brings something big. Who knows? Sometimes you've been sitting on the shoreline today and nothing's coming. And that's okay. You never know, but something might have happened today that means something does come in a bit later, maybe. But just allow the day to be what it has been. Don't strive to find meaning in it. But it may be that something has come alive for you that you want to just carry on working with, looking after, reflecting on the God of small things, you know, changes in our lives. Um, and of course, this, is, this, is, uh, this little story is called The Path to Sanity. I watched my friend walk along the path and noticed that sometimes, quite suddenly, he would break out into laughter. Why do you laugh, I asked. Well, how could I do anything else, he said. Look at me, I'm so riddled with pretenses. How could I possibly take myself seriously? No, I must laugh. And then a little later, along the same path, I noticed that my friend was a frustrated figure and in obvious despair. Why do you despair, I asked. Well, how can I do anything else, he said. Look at me, what, what do you see but a, a tight little knot of self-protection who never seems to change? Of course I must despair. I watched him walk on down the path, laughing, despairing, laughing, despairing, and sometimes dancing. I asked a local woman, where the path went. Oh, he'll be all right, she said. It's the path to sanity. <laughs> uh, and I wish you, I wish you that. Thank you very much.